Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Welcome back to Business Black Belts. Laura Hoover here with you. Another fantastic leader with us today, Andrew Amen. He is the CEO and founder of 923 Adventure Studio. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Why don't you go ahead and get us started? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing. Uh, it's kind of the whole package. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Laura. I appreciate it. So my name's Andrew. I'm the CEO and founder of 923 Venture Studio. We've been around for 10 years. Um, we started the company based around one app. Uh, we were a business card replacement app for the first five years of our journey. And then in 2016, that app got acquired and we were able to keep the team. And now we build, we've built 55 products uh, in the IoT space, machine learning. Uh, we've started 14 startups ourselves inside of the Venture Studio. And at this point in 2022, what our business model is, is we work with second and third time and fourth time entrepreneurs and revolutionize the, the products that they're thinking about uh, because we don't necessarily bring capital to the table, but we do bring a product team, a network, uh, business model assumptions, business model analysis, and most importantly, we build the products, uh, world-class products with world-class designs. And so that's what we're doing today. We're building these uh, products for our, most of our clients or sometimes our partners. And whether we start the company or have equity in the company or also are just building as a, a client project, we are in the software mobile and web space. So the first thing that I, I, I have to ask, and this is just pure curiosity, when I was diving a little bit deeper into you and like looking at, at you guys, how do you begin to develop all of these products? What like because that that's a huge undertaking if you're just starting off that way. But it's also a huge undertaking, you know, like, okay, we develop this thing onto the next, onto the next. So that's like a massive creative and then personnel overhaul, like over and over and over again. Yeah, so the 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 model itself, uh, especially if you speak to other people in the venture studio space, the core essence of the team is that we're product builders. We know how to build an app from zero to one, and so a login screen is very similar, a profile screen is very similar, and then the essence of that app, the uniqueness, is where we come in with our business model analysis. We understand now after building fifty products of what business models typically work and which ones struggle. Um, Two sided marketplaces, for example, is something that is very difficult to achieve early on in a product's life cycle of, of success or profitability because you have to build out really two products in one. Um, but for the most part, the team has very regimented procedures and processes that they go to. And so if you look at uh, manufacturing supply chain, we're very similar to that. It's a systemized process from when a new app comes in the door, you, we go through our business model, the jobs to be done. We go through the prototyping and the designs. And then we build the application, right? So it's just like a manufacturing supply chain. You have phase one, phase two, phase three. And as you go through that uh, supply chain, or in our case, our app building process, we have over 200 procedures that uh, earmark exactly what should be done in each part of the process. And so it's a very systematized approach to building products. So is that also how you kind of like figure out what to develop next? Is just like looking at and like, okay, what systems do we already have in place that we can tweak to build off of to, to improve or make something useful for someone else? Yes and no. So over the years, our model has shifted from building internally, those 14 startups that I mentioned, 
to building startups for other people. Gotcha. Um, and when you have make that transition, the ideas don't come from in-house. They come from an industry or a place in which we have experience in. And so when I look at the flywheel of what works for us is we start off first by understanding an industry and working for a client, whether it's as an agency or as a consultant. Once we start to understand that industry, we meet other people around that space or that idea, or even that original founder has a team that is thinking of uh, you know, ancillary products in that same industry. But once we typically learn an industry, you start to learn how it works and operates and you figure out where the gaps are. Once those gaps appear, there's really only two models that work. There's complete disruption, which is you go in and you create a startup from scratch and you fill that void, or you work with a company that has legacy knowledge in the space and you help them transition to create a sustainable product in the new industry gap that is now existing, that, that has now like appeared. And so those two models, you know, either a company can come to us and say, look, you know, the industry has shifted so much that we want to try to enter the space or, you know, we need to morph our product into X, Y, and Z. Can you help us do that? And we have the expertise to work with the business model and build a product for that gap. And then in the extreme case, there can be startups that come to us and say, look, I've seen the industry. Uh, I see this, the separation in the industry. I see a new opportunity. I'm trying to disrupt that space. And so we work with both of those sides and that's how those ideas are formulated uh, because they're basically presented to us and we, we can see that the, the gap in the industry as well. So is that how you, okay, I'm going to back to this a little bit back again. Is that how you kind of start developing those 14 startups within your company as well? Like, okay, I'm seeing a shift here and here. We need to build that up. Well, that doesn't really fit our exact core model, but we could build something around it. Right. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when COVID hit, Zoom had a list of yeah. about a thousand uh, products that could be built based on the Zoom platform to help people, whether it was remote from home or, or work from home. Um, and th- we visibly saw that list and a lot of agents, a lot of agencies were trying to figure out what they can do or what products they can build. We didn't have an idea right off the top, but we did notice that nobody was building for churches. And so we decided to investigate how that industry works. And we found the gap in 2020 was that all of the video conferencing technology that was being created did not approach the church space, yeah. you know, getting services online on Sunday. And so we decided to enter that industry and place a product in that industry as a startup to disrupt how people get online to watch Sunday services. And so you see the industry presented itself because of COVID and we were ripe to build the product and it was our capabilities yeah. to build that product. We could have built it for anybody. It's We saw the opportunity to build for churches. And today that product is a profitable company uh, building for us, uh, solving the, the church video conferencing well, space. So, I mean, just pinging off of that a little bit, it's, it's, it's not just, you know, online streaming for, for Sundays. You know, a, a, a lot of ministers or pastors also have, you know, their own podcast or their own sermons that they, you know, post right. on social and all that. I mean, that still kind of can use the, the same platforms it, itself. Um, but, okay. We're going to go walk all the way back to the beginning. W- why did you land in this space? Like, w- what caused you to want to do all of this? <laughs> sure. So the journey that I took was, uh, I, I call it an intrapreneur. So out of school, I was a mechanical engineer. I worked for nuclear submarines for the first five years of my life. And I was uh, going around in the supply chain of how nuclear submarines get put to 
to market were really just pushed into the water uh, to be to be commissioned. And one of the things that I noticed is that we lose a lot of parts in manufacturing. And it's true on any manufacturing floor I've ever been on. It's very common to lose large parts. In fact, car, people that ship cars on boats lose about 10 to 15 cars in a parking lot every single month. It's an insane problem, but insurance covers it so they can find them later. Uh, it's a whole story that we get into. But through my journey, um, entrepreneurship has allowed me the opportunity to invent ideas while working for a company. And so while I was working in that nuclear space, I saw the gap in supply chain where you were losing these parts and technology can be a solving, uh, like a solving capability to help find parts. And so I invented a Bluetooth chip that it triangulates in a shop floor where parts are. And we were the first ones to ever create that, that supply chain innovation. And so we got three United States patents on it. And I traveled around the world trying to install this patented system. And there's many, many challenges when trying to do corporate innovation. But what I realized was that none of the rewards was coming to me directly. It was, you know, the patents are owned by the company. The innovation is owned by the company. And I'm just a player. So by the time 2016 hit and we were building that secondary app that I mentioned at the beginning, which was the digital business card app, it all kind of came together that one, I should be working for myself. And I had a great co-founder that was willing to take the jump at the same time as me and move into software. So we were both, he was a computer science major. I was a mechanical engineer major. And we decided to go full-time on our side gig, which is this agency. And uh, over the last six years now, we've built the team to 67 individuals um, that are building these projects again and again for our clients and customers. But the journey, the, the, the transition that you asked is from going from mechanical is just seeing that software was the future. And it was something that I was able to connect the dots of how business models can create profits, long, long sustained product profits for companies. And I think that knowledge put me into the space in which software was a great tool or a great vehicle for people to pay me money to, to solve it. Yeah, them. mechanical is still around. I think it's going to be around for a long time. It's just going to have to adapt. Oh, yeah, for sure. Into being yeah. able to also yeah. handle software at the same time. I mean, you just look Correct. at cars. We're going full electric. That's no longer just mechanics. That's electrical. That's software. That's, you know, the whole bundle. My goodness. Oh, yeah. But uh, any CNC machine still uses floppy disks, and I'm not even joking. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sad thing, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there, there, there are too, too much floppy disks still around that shouldn't be around. <sighs> well, so it, it does serve a very unique use case in nuclear, though, yeah. because you can't uh, steal that's it. True because you have to physically have the floppy disk with the code, yeah. down, right? So in the nuclear industry, uh, having hard, yeah, I mean, you can use USB ports, hard, I guess, hard but copies. having a, a floppy disk to a hard copy is very important. <laughs> Physical hard copy. That, that's more than just paper and a pen. That'd yes. be nice. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. props for you to being able to survive in the nuclear industry. I know how, how hard that can be. I have some friends who work in the industry right now. Um, and it, it just it just it's a grind um but yeah yes. i totally understand you know that kind of transition like oh, okay yeah we need to you know find solutions for some of these things how in the world do you lose a car uh <laughs> you know those <laughs> just kind of like probably should have been thought about and done a while ago but just haven't been um yeah. so then you build this company 
and it's kind of a side gig now it turns into a full-time thing right what are some of those challenges breaking in to the corporate world because it it, it is it is something very hard to break into and then also become reputable to be able to go and do this what what was that like yeah, there's two challenges, uh, two paths that you have to solve as a founder, especially when you get to a team of the, like the team that we have now. It's 67 large, and that doesn't even include the startups, uh, which could push us closer to 80. The challenge is both the mental health side of it, of trying to grow an agency and be supportive of everything you're trying to do and the amount of time that it takes. Uh, but the second part of it is having the team around you that believes in the same vision and that's the, the super important part that you need to start with. And so the team, you know, we started in 2016 when we had our acquisition of, of our product, the team was in place to solve business problems. It didn't take us until three years to really put the procedures and the processes in place of repetitively solving those problems and really enjoying what we're doing. Um, the pandemic year was a tough year for us because it was like that transition point from going from, you know, basically product builder into company builder. But once we found our, our foothold in the fact that we're really good at business models, we're really good at taking and being a partner for a startup that's trying to disrupt something. And we're also very good, uh, like Pavel calls it fractional CTO, but I call it just technology innovation and understanding how our product should be built for scalability. And a lot of the products we do now has millions of users or they have millions of devices that they're they're putting out, whether it's packages or units or whatever they're doing, it's, it's larger uh, customers with larger problems. And when you start, you start with websites and you start with small wins and you say yes to everything. Uh, we're lucky enough now in 2022 that we can be selective of the projects we want to work on. And so we're working in the mental health space. We're working on solving allergy problems for parents and their kids. We're working on solving what houses are going to be on the market uh, before Zillow knows so that we don't have to monopolize the Zillow marketplace. And these problems are bigger and we're more suited to, to work on them, but it's a grind and you need to put in the five, six years of saying yes to everything to get to the point in which other people look at your company and say, yeah, it's pretty cool what you do, but they don't remember when we were just working on tax software for 10 years, for, for like basically six years of our lives, every single tax season, right? And that becomes a grind, but that was one of our big customers and that was one we supported and we enjoy the fact that he was our first customer, but it, you, you grow up and you go past those initial projects and you start uh, getting the opportunity to work with bigger and better entrepreneurs. So you mentioned 2020 as being a kind of pivot. Was that planned for about that time to pivot kind of what direction you guys were headed in? Because it's also very hard to do when COVID unexpectedly or kind of expectedly hits and then just kind of kills everything. Yeah, so our company was unaffected by COVID. Uh, we were fully remote since 2016, and we were global uh, before COVID hit. So when the pandemic happened, the only thing that changed for us, which was for the better, like I have kids and dogs, and so does my co-founder and, and all the families. And we used to drive to a co-working space, go to an office, which was like a shared meeting room, sit in the meeting room, take a sales call, then drive home back to work from our desk because we all wanted to be with our kids and our dogs and our families. And so we did that basically from 2017, 2018, 2019. We would constantly just drive for a meeting and we'd set our day around being in a conference room to look like we had an office. So when COVID hit, we're like, great, 
kids can come on screen, dogs can come on screen. Looks like everybody's like finally adapting to the fact that we were home and it was fine to call somebody in their house. Um, but before 2020, it wasn't. It was awkward to be home and you would, they didn't have the technology where you could like blur out your background either. So if you were home, you knew you were home and to win business and to do business then was harder. Uh, and then all of a sudden 2020 hit and you know everyone was doing what we were doing. And I was like, this is great. It's a benefit for our business. Uh, so COVID didn't change us. Uh, what did change us at that time, you know, the big transition year was going from building startups. Like we had probably eight or nine startups at that point to understanding how to make that profitable. And there's a lot of challenges when you have a lot of, you know, at bats or whatever the metaphor you want to use. When you have that many things going on, you're trying to figure out what's, where should you put your energy and where should you convince other people to put their energy? And so 2020, we didn't really know. 2021, we started getting coaching and help. In 2022, we're using the EOS framework, which is the um, the framework from Traction, which is really putting us on a, a very direct and syncopated pace with the rest of the company. So you, there's also one point that I want I want to get back to as well is you mentioned you already were global at that point. What kind of challenges yes. does does that face? Because Working from home remotely just within the U.S. is is, is hard enough with, you know, four time zones. <laughs> what, what what does globally look like? Yeah, you need the right people in place that know how to work remotely, but then you also need those procedures to match the, the culture of the company. So for us, we're all on Slack. Uh, there's no specific time that you have to work, but there are some core times in which meetings occur. Uh, and so the East Coast time is probably the, the core time framework that we all work to. Even people from California and stuff, we're now expanding in that direction, which we hadn't until this year. We've always expanded East. Um, they start to work on East Coast time as well. And I think there's that core set of hours that we're all kind of in front of a computer for three, four hours, and then people get their work done. And if they're a good remote worker and we hire the right person for the right fit, and they have the same culture as us, and they share our values, then it doesn't become an issue because they get their work done, they communicate when they can, but they could also be communicating while they're at the park with their kid and doing the work an hour or two earlier when they were in front of their computer. And so the good work, remote workers over time are hard to find, but this year we've had 100% retention. We haven't lost a single person to anything in the company. And it's been an honor to have the right processes and culture in place so that people really do find a place of enjoyment of where they work. Do the do countries, especially on like on the global stage, start to interfere with that like business transaction with working with just everything going on? I mean, from physically being across borders to uh, you know just living somewhere else. Yeah, so we have two approaches to this, um, or two two like things we have to deal with with countries. And the first one is just the legal laws and rights of an individual working for a remote company. Um, we have people in South Africa, and it's very specific of who they can work with, how they can work. Canada has the same type of, of regulations as a consultant. And so you have to play by those rules. Uh, but there are systems like deal.com that allows you to be on one side, which is the American side, and the software deals with the rules and regulations, and the person deals with their rules and regulations on the other side. And so the software makes it super easy. I can hire anybody in the world through deal.com. And on my end, I'm dealing with American transactions. And on their end, they can get their money paid in their currency on a credit card, 
in crypto. They can do whatever they want from their side because their portal is like almost logging into a bank and the software deals with the intermediary of like, what's the difference between the Canadian rules and regulations and the Americans. And so we sign our paperwork and the paperwork gets converted to Canadian rules and we have to make sure we abide by those laws. So that's the first answer is like software has solved that globalization hiring problem. And we've been at the cutting edge of that since 2016 because we've had these issues. Uh, I guess there's a third thing, which is um, dealing with time tracking. Uh, Time tracking is a must if you're remote and coming from a nuclear engineer background and working on nuclear submarines, we time track like people are on submarines. If they sit down at their desk, they clock in. If they are working on a specific project, they clock into that project. Once they complete that project or move on to another project, they clock out of that project and clock into the next one. And in real time, within seconds, I can see how the team's performing, what their efficiency ratios are, what the profitability is for the day. But that allows us to understand who's contributing and who's not, and that manages the the workforce. Now, back to the country thing, um, the countries create those rules and regulations, the software solves that, and the time tracking allows us to understand who is working. That the third part of this, um, which I jumped, which but the third part is countries can create problems that don't allow us to communicate properly with those individuals. And when the Ukraine war happened, we had 25 members in Ukraine uh, that were trying to figure out how to get paid. And Bank of America had shut down services to Russia, Belarus, and, and Ukraine. I still, to this day, do not know why they shut down to Ukraine because it was not fair at all. Um, but they did not allow us to transfer money from our bank account to their bank account. What the small business has the opportunity of is being the risk takers and how to solve what countries are trying to create as problems or political battles with our own risk-taking abilities of using software. So we worked with deal.com at the time with this uh, customer service agent, Jordan, who I'm pretty sure changed the rules and regulations of how deal was operating to allow us to pay the Ukrainian uh, the, the developers and project managers and all that through a service where their money was not being held in a Ukrainian bank. And so for the first time in our history, we were able to transfer money from an American bank to a, a specific person living in Ukraine without using a Ukraine intermediary bank. And they could take money onto a credit card. They could take money in house. Now, obviously, if they needed cash, they had to go through their Ukrainian bank. But the service was an internet money at that point that they had control over. And so even though those countries tried to create restrictions of us transferring cash from anyone transferring cash into Ukraine, we still found a way because it's of our business to pay the people that are working for us. And it's a restriction that the government's trying to create, but it's not a restriction on us, right? And there was no rules or laws that Americans can transfer money. So we do have to deal with those. And in this Ukrainian case, it was a specific way where I talk about that Politics are one thing, but running a business is another. And this technology is allowing us to work globally without boundaries. And we're finding ways to do that regardless of what the politics are. That is amazing. That, that like, because I, I, I've, I've always heard, um, like, remote work in, in hiring in different states is a headache, especially for a startup. If you don't have all the paperwork done and already going. And I couldn't imagine what it's like to try and do that on a global stage. Like between states is already a headache. It, it, it must be absolute migraine to go overseas <laughs> or just across the board. It is way harder. 
it is way harder to hire between states than is it, it is really? globally. I, oh yeah, I we have a, a one of our project managers is in Pennsylvania. I have to call the school that she lives in. So she lives in some town in Pennsylvania. I have to call the physical school and let the school know that there is a person working in their town that will be paying taxes to that school through remote work, which is my company. And that is a regulation that I have to go through to hire a person in Pennsylvania in that town. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I haven't called a school in South Africa yet. Wow. <laughs> But I've called the school in Pennsylvania, and I think we're gonna have to do it again for California. Usually, usually it's like a like a tax office. In Pennsylvania's case, it's the school board. All right, sure. I, I yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay then. Um, but besides Pennsylvania and all its struggles, apparently that causes people headaches. Um, taking a step <laughs> back completely from business for a second, what do you do to to kind of get away to kind of in the moment? disconnect a little bit to be able to come back full force yeah so um it's like we talked about this when we asked about the challenges of building a company i said the first one is the mental health of going through i mean two wars at this point a pandemic uh and uh multiple acquisitions it's the challenge is in yourself because when you start you think you're bigger than you are and you think you have a higher ceiling and so, especially when you're younger, there's a whole ego aspect of building a company that I think every entrepreneur has. And you look online and people make it look so easy, but you're also only looking at the 1% of the 1% who are successful. And you don't really see the 99% that are struggling like you are. It's taken three, four years now for myself to get to the point where I'm finding individuals that are like me, that are building companies that, you know, five, $10 million in revenue and are still struggling with identity. And so even the person you're seeing online as a front that's saying, the world is awesome. We're building with a bunch of profit. I'm driving Teslas. In the background, they could still be struggling with loneliness, depression, and, and challenges that they might be having as well. And so seeing that and meeting people in the last two years, now that we can finally go back to conferences, having those conversations about the struggles is really important uh, for a founder to see that you know it's not about just building products. It's also about like finding balance. So I go for walks every day. Uh, I have a dog who you might be hearing in the background, um, but we go for an hour walk every morning. I try to exercise every day. Uh, my wife's a great cook. So we eat healthy every day and those things matter. And I think, you know, having time with the kids every day, being able to be home and watch them grow. And those are all the important things that you cherish. And as you take breaks from work, you get to walk out instead of going to a water cooler you get to walk out and watch your kids drawing or playing with something. It's it's a benefit that you don't always get to take for granted. Uh, but then when you see it and you, as you get older and older, you realize how, how valuable it is that we can work from home and that I can take those mental breaks and be with them. That is very also very important for just everybody to be able to take those mental breaks and just, just take a breath, go, go walk somewhere. Go walk around the block, right? Mm -hmm. Go watch your kids exactly. do whatever they're doing. Like, just exactly. disconnect for a second because there's always going to be work. So it can wait for a minute. Right. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Angie, for coming on Business Black Belts. If anyone wants to get in contact with you, whether it be about yourself, um, more about 923 Venture Studio, is LinkedIn the best way? Is the website? Is email? 
Yeah, so Twitter is where I'm most active. That's where I see a lot of my conversations with individuals that are seeking help uh, or advice on venture studios. We uh, we offer both of those. LinkedIn is probably the next best place to find me uh, just to see what we're doing. We're very active on Twitter and LinkedIn, so I think that'll be enough to at least contact me if you need to. Uh, but our website too has about 250 blogs at this point uh, that you can read about us and understand about what we're building and, and kind of the stories we've been through. Awesome. So, that's the best place. I, th- I think you you are going to be one of like two or three people that actively use Twitter, which I I, I appreciate. So, <laughs> Twitter first. Twitter is the yeah. The Twitter is my uh, go to for everything for news for friends for things that are happening. It's the best source of social media for me. <laughs> I'm right there with you, hundred percent. Ah, nice. But, Good. Um, Yes. yes. Again, thank you so much for coming on Business Black Belts. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and then same to all of our listeners. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks. Thanks.